If you have a Bible, please would you open it to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I want to take you back into this letter to the Ephesians. We began a series uh, a few months ago when we, we started to open up this particular letter, written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted and that he had not been to for some years. He spent a couple of years there establishing it, strengthening it, and it became a very significant, very significant church. Some years later, he then wrote this letter, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, and it is known um, as one of the most influential pieces of literature that's ever been written, without question. And um, partly because of it, the very high doctrine or understanding of what the church is. And that's really the theme that we're going to be driving into in the coming weeks. I want to resume this series then after our pause. And I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 2. And I want to uh, read that section that begins with verse 11 through to the end of that particular chapter. Our focus this evening is really going to be on the first few verses there. And I'll show you where that is. But I want to read that section in order to establish something of the context of what he's saying here. It helps us give, uh, have clarity about where he's driving with his instruction and teaching here. So let's read together. Ephesians 2.11. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's where our focus will be this evening. But let's read on. He says, For he himself, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's speaking there about the division between Jew and Gentile. And the reality of the church is what he calls their one new man in Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I'm returning to this letter. We are driving hard into the, the, the main theme really that Sonic kind of sits at the heart of this particular letter that he wrote, which is the doctrine of the church, the teaching in the New Testament about what the church is. And I, I wanted to just start by offering some clarity here, what I mean by the word, because I do believe there's a lot of confusion. When we use the language of church, I don't mean here, obviously, to speak about buildings. I think that is probably the most common use of the word church in English today, is to refer to specific structures that, find, that we have all over the nation. But of course, the early church, and this one included, had no building. They did not possess buildings. They met in people's homes. 
or they met in the open air, or they met in whatever temporary abode they could find. It wasn't for some centuries until they began to build buildings, and that those buildings then took the name of church, but that's not what the word originally meant. Nor does it mean denominations. Uh, Denominations are gatherings of churches that are usually bound together in some way legally, and uh, must abide by certain rules and teachings, and there are many of them in the world, aren't there? And very often, if you say, if you speak of the church in England, it very it usually brings to mind the, 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 uh, the state church, the Church of England that has bishops in the House of Lords and that um, has a presence at coronations and other major events in our national life. Now, we're not a Church of England church. I don't have a problem with the Church of England, but they, are, they don't have a kind of um, a monopoly on the name church, and it doesn't mean a denomination. There were no denominations in the New Testament. So it's not buildings, it's not denominations, and nor is it referring here to a particular moment in your week, a service or a meeting like this one. We do use that, the language in that way, don't we, where we say, I'm going to church, and we mean there, I'm going to worship with other Christians around me. And whether I interact with them or not is an irrelevant matter. I'm going to church just means I'm there. And that's not what at all what, what the word means in the New Testament either. Of course, they had services like these. But the language in the New Testament of church, the, the word simply means an assembly, a gathering. But it takes on a more of a spiritual idea in that it, it captures the idea of the assembly or the group or the company of God's people, both globally and through history back in time, but also represented locally whenever God's people are together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we open God's Word and we have um, appointed leaders and so on. It's the company of the redeemed gathered from all nations and forming what Paul's describing here in this chapter as a holy temple. We no longer have physical temples um, within our faith as was in Jerusalem. What we rather have is a living temple. People like you and me, built together into a community inhabited by the Holy Spirit to bring worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what a church, the word church, means in the New Testament. Now, I want to begin by just asking you, why is this such an important theme for Paul particularly, and why he spends so much time and effort teaching into it in order to impart his vision and understanding of the, what the church is? And the answer that I want to draw to your attention at the outset here, that really lies in the background, or is explicit really here in Paul's teaching, is this idea that the church is a supernatural institution or organization, or even organism, because it has life. It's supernatural. And when I use that, I mean to say that you cannot explain it on purely human or fleshy terms. And that was obviously true then. When you walked into a gathering like the one that Paul was writing to here in Ephesus, you would have been amazed if you were Um, a contemporary, because what you would have seen would have confused you. You would have walked in and found, as he mentions here, Jewish people worshipping alongside Gentiles, a division that was never breached. I mean, Jews wouldn't even eat with Gentiles, typically. So how could they worship together? And then you would find a slave worshipping alongside a master, that great distinction that existed 
socially where you'd have Roman citizens who maybe had possessed wealth and owned slaves, and then slaves who were typically um, prisoners of war and, and economic slaves who had no citizenship and were owned by masters, yet they were Christians, and when they found themselves within the context of the church, they were equal alongside others. There was no preferential treatment because of your status in society. And that was absolutely mind-boggling and confusing, apart from the fact that God was doing a work among these people. You would find men and women worshipping alongside each other, something which, of course, wasn't uh, the case within the synagogue system in Judaism. And, of course, there were extraordinary discrepancies in terms of just rights for men and women in the Roman world at large. And then you find them worshipping alongside each other with a, a sense of equal worth and dignity, and uh, that, was, that was an extraordinary reality. I think it would have been utterly um, magnificent for someone to see that for the first time in this particular context. The church was a supernatural organization, and it still is. One of the ways in which you can see that today is the spread of the gospel globally. If you were to pull up a map of the world and then have the ability to kind of highlight different religions and worldviews across the atlas, uh, you could find them concentrated in different places. So you said, like, show me where, where a heat map of where most of the Buddhists are. You discover them in certain sections of Asia and, and uh, India. Or if you wanted to see where Hindus are, you'd find them concentrated in India and the, the nations just north particularly. Or if you wanted to see where Islam is, you'd see it mainly through the 1040 window, that sort of band of um, the, lat- the lines of latitude where the Muslim armies conquered right across North Africa and also in the other direction. And the same is true of secularism. It mainly dominates in the Western world. But Christianity is unique among religions and worldviews because on the global map, it is everywhere and not concentrated anywhere. And there is a sense in which that is testament to the extraordinary reality and power of the gospel that it is not bound by particular cultures or bound by particular historical um, norms, but rather has unleashed as a powerful message into all the world and is changing people from every nation and tribe and language. That's one of the most beautiful and supernatural elements of the Christian faith. And it's that that was in Paul's heart and mind as he writes this letter, and all that that implies for us. And yet, I think his concern was this, that that extraordinary spirit-born life that ought to be on display in every church as it becomes a representation of the kingdom of God with people from all different backgrounds and races and economic um, levels and all these kinds of things, that miracle can be lost. And churches can lose something of the power and the spiritual life that once existed in them and they can become ingrown and monocultural or exclusive. They can become judgmental or even within themselves divided and factious and the beauty of a united people worshipping one Lord can suddenly become um, erased by the squabbling and the infighting and all the kinds of things which churches have struggled with at times in our past. And at some point, I think, when a church has lost this supernatural dimension of what it's supposed to be, 
at some point you've got to ask whether it's still a church. That it may be the case that a church has so lost the gospel and the power of the gospel that it no longer really is a church. It's a gathering of people doing religious activities, but Christ isn't there. And the evidence of that is their life together. And so I think it's for that reason that Paul wanted this vision, this reality to be seen and understood and prioritized and cherished in every believer's heart, mainly for the glory of Jesus, because nothing testifies to the magnificence and the achievements of our Savior more evidently than a people gathered together to worship him with no other reason to be together other than him. Also for the good of the world. Because we, the, visible, the most visible demonstration of the gospel that people will see is the church. And unfortunately, when church is sick, then people are not interested in our Savior. And it's also for our own good. So Paul's passionate that we pursue this understanding and embody this supernatural life that had captivated him. And I want to ask you the question, how? How can that not only be true of us in the present, but in a deeper way going forward, so that we give ourselves to this vision, each one of us. And the answer I want to give you is that it must start with you. That you must see this. And it must grip your heart. Well, in the New Testament, whether it's here or in in 1 Peter 2, when it's speaking about us being a living temple, The idea there is that each one of us is one of the stones in this temple. And for the temple to have structural integrity and strength, each stone has to be placed correctly. And therefore, your spirituality, your understanding and vision of the gospel, and your commitment to church and what church is meant to be, all of that makes a difference. It begins in you. And more than just beginning in you, it begins deep in your heart. There are heart inclinations that fight and war against This reality of what church is meant to be. Things like pride and judgment. And things like selfishness and isolation and consumerism. And all these things militate against creating the kind of church family and community and temple that the New Testament speaks of. And therefore, in order for us to see this accomplished among us or in any place, the change has to be deep inside of each one of us. And that's a change that I think Paul had seen within himself. Never forget that. If you want to understand the man, understand the passion of his writing, understand what he's devoting himself to, you cannot separate him from his story. When we first meet the Apostle Paul, it's in early on in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 and 7 tells us a story of the martyr, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, how he was pulled up before the authorities and and questioned and how he delivered his defense in Jerusalem in these early days of the Christian church and how he passionately preached about Christ as his savior and how he failed to convince these opponents that what he was preaching was true. And the mob rose up and stoned him to death. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, this early history of the church, has a little throwaway line It's very significant, obviously, in his mind, and we ought to take note of it. But it's just right there at the beginning of Acts 8, where he just says that Saul, or Paul, the author of our letter, was there giving approval 
to his death. The first meeting we have with this man is his fanatic religious zeal. He was the ancient equivalent in some respects of the kind of zealous uh, uh, fanaticism that you see among groups like the Taliban, where there is a passion for separatism and purity and the maintaining of purity and the willingness also to use violence against anything which might contaminate the purity of the life and lifestyle and the message. That was Paul when we meet him, and I'm not exaggerating. He immediately sets off on a mission to go and arrest Christians and see them meet the same fate as Stephen until Christ stops him and arrests him in his meeting with Jesus. And something happens in this man's heart. So that from being a devout, passionate Jew who had given himself to fulfilling the law as perfectly as he could for all of his life up to that point, he now has a radical change of direction, begins to preach the gospel and travels among the Gentiles sharing the news about his Messiah Jesus with a global audience. How do you compute that kind of a transformation? It's the grace of God. And so here, even in this letter to the Ephesians, he says in Ephesians 3.1, listen to this, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. A man willing to suffer and be imprisoned, and ultimately he met execution himself because of his undimmed ambition to make Christ known among people who had no business in his story before this point. People who he had formerly regarded as outsiders. And now he said, you need to know Jesus. I want to ask then, how, does he, how, how can we be changed and have hearts like the apostle? How does he seek to to ground us and root us in the same way of thinking and feeling that he was controlled by. And the first great principle that I think we need to fix in place just as a general thing here comes in verse 11 when he says, therefore remember. I just want to pause in that word remember and put in place a, a kind of theological and spiritual principle here that will kind of serve what we're about to say later. And the principle is this. That within the Christian faith, and I think perhaps uniquely within the Christian faith of all world faiths, there is a a massive emphasis upon the spiritual discipline of remembrance and of memory as a way of forming and renewing you spiritually in the present. Now, I want to show you how this connects with your attitude to and your heart towards the church in a few minutes, but we need to just fix this in place, first of all. Now, you can understand this on the natural level like this, that memory is vital in forming who you are as a person. If you have ever witnessed someone at the beginning of their life, as they begin to form memories, it shapes their personality. And the tragedy of someone losing memories at the other end of their life, it's not like any other disease, because when you have other diseases... The person's still there. They're still with you. But when memories are fading away, you feel like you're losing somebody before your very eyes day after day. 
Memory is so bound up with who we are and our identity. It's true in your friendships as well, isn't it? That your relationships become thicker the more you share memories with people. And the more years you have under your belt and the more shared experiences you have, the more you reminisce about the past until eventually you get so old that you do nothing new and the only thing you ever do together is reminisce about the past. And there's joy and pleasure in that because you're reliving everything that you've shared together to that moment. So memory is not only key to identity, but it's also key to our relationships. Now that's true to our detriment or for our benefit, to our detriment when you've experienced pain and hardship and suffering and perhaps even trauma in life and like a bone that's not set correctly, if it's not dealt with, it can distort who you are as a person. Memories can affect you for your life. They also build you up, though. The memories of love and of affection and a commitment and the joy you've experienced, joys that you've experienced in life, all that forms who you are as a person. And therefore, it should be no surprise, I don't think, That this principle is weaved into Scripture as one of the most important aspects of what it means to be a faithful believer. That faithful believers, in other words, are those who cherish and renew their memory of God's faithfulness. Now, when throughout Scripture, whenever people fail to do this, they slide into idol worship. It's described like that in a few places in Scripture, that, when they, that they, they become idolatrous when they fail to remember the goodness of God. It's there, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, where it says that you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And he's describing there how they began to sacrifice to demons that were no gods, and to gods they'd never known. So they become, Israel became idol worshippers. Why? Because they'd forgotten the God who had redeemed them from, from slavery. And when they forgot all the good that he'd done for them, suddenly they're scratching around trying to find new gods. You see this pattern being played out time and time again in the book of Judges, which is one of the most thrilling and depressing books of the Bible because it takes you on the ups and downs of spiritual renewal and then cycles of decline. And whenever the cycle of decline is taking place, the reason why people are losing their faith is because they've forgotten the God who saved them. And when you take God out of the picture, their identity as God's people begins to fragment and dissolve. So you find, for example, in in Judges chapter 3, it's put like this. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So they begin to do wicked things, sin in all kinds of ways. And they begin to become idolaters. Why? Because they've forgotten. They failed to keep the memory of God in their personal and communal life. And then that spiritual life dissolves. The opposite is also true, though, that the Bible repeatedly says, look, faithfulness is remembering. When Moses receives the law on Sinai, having received from God the things that he wanted for his people, God immediately tells him, write it down. Scripture, of course, is the primary way by which we remember. And there's a reason why it's full of stories. Because they tell of the faithfulness and the great acts of God. 
And this is why a Christian should be immersed in the scriptures and know them inside out in order to have a mind and an imagination formed by and rekindled memories of the the goodness of God. And it's there in other ways as well. So not only did they have scripture, they also have physical memorials. The Israelites did things like God told them to sew tassels on the corners of their garments. It wasn't a fashion um, accessory. They were there to remind them of the God's commands. And it's not that they particularly in any way represented the commands. It's just that the fact that they're there says, oh, we're God's people and we therefore obey his commands. Or when Joshua takes the people into the promised land and they have to cross the River Jordan, God commands him to build a monument of stones, loose stones built up into a kind of little structure, so that whenever children would see it, whenever they were journeying with their parents and ask, what is that pile of stones there for? They could relay the story of God's goodness to them as a people. It's there all the way through Scripture in these kinds of ways, perhaps supremely in the festivals and the rhythms of worship that the Israelites experienced. They would go to festival seasons, and each festival was representative of God's faithfulness. It would point back to things that God had done in their past, so they were relived among them. And I think the most supreme of them was, was Passover. That moment each year when they would celebrate their redemption from Egypt and from slavery, and all that it symbolized looking forward about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as a a sacrificial lamb. Now, this continues on into the life of the church. And this stuff is so vital because when the church loses its memory and loses the gospel, it begins to be malformed. This is why, as Christians... We keep the gospel at center. We keep Christ at the center of everything we do. I think this is why the the, the main feature of worship in the New Testament is that whenever you gather, you take the Lord's Supper. Because it means that whatever else happens in the gathering, one thing is fixed. We remember what has been accomplished for us in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. His resurrection from the dead. Why? Because as much as our faith is future, faith in what God is going to do for us in the future is resting upon the faithfulness of God. And to believe in his faithfulness, you need to remember the past. And so our past and our future are bound together in an unbroken thread. That's how the Christian faith works. You cannot be a Christian isolated in history a mere punctuation mark. No, you have to be rooted in the great drama of what God has been accomplishing since the beginning of the world and supremely what he did in and through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and where you fit within that, which brings us back to the passage. Here's what Paul says. Therefore remember, what? That at one time, you Gentiles, which I'm guessing refers to 99% of the people in this room. You Gentiles in the flesh, uh, which is just, of course, the way of speaking of those who are non-Jews, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, What Paul is driving at here, remember we need to place this back into its context in the passage in which he's trying to articulate a vision 
of the church as a gathered people forming one new man in Christ. And what he's showing us here is the importance of memory, which I've been speaking about, in the formation of identity. The sense of who you are right now. And this is why he calls you to remember your story. Why? Not to induce shame in you. Many of us will think of the past and the things that we've done with a flush of shame. Some people never struggle to shake that. I don't think Paul would for one second want you to feel shame about the past because as he says about his own past when he said that I'm the worst of sinners in one of his letters and elsewhere he says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. It's like if I thought if the past controlled me, I'd be depressed. I'd probably commit suicide is effectively what he, he would have been thinking there. But he's saying, I forget what lies behind. I press on because I belong to Jesus. So the past mustn't control you in that negative sense. Neither is he wanting us to remember the past in order to fuel pride. Some people love to tell their story because it's rags to riches or a story of accomplishment or look where I came from. You know, every Brit thinks that they're working class because it means that they can then claim credit for where they got to even if they had no association with being working class. You know, it's not to be in order to build up our pride. What is it that he's saying here? He's saying this is why you need to know your story in order to induce The humility and fundamentally the gratitude upon which the Christian life is built. The Christian life is not do, do, do. It's done. It's done by Jesus. And so the fundamental posture of worship for the Christian is saying thank you. And this is why he wants you to call to mind your status before you met Jesus. To bring to life that gratitude, and to begin to shape how you worship him right now. And so he reminds us of the past before he tells us about the present. He says that the past was like this. You were once the uncircumcision, called that by the circumcision. It's it's slightly obscured by the English here, but this is a derogatory term. He's saying that the Jews called you guys, literally in the Greek, the foreskins, And if that sounds offensive, it is. It's as offensive as it sounds. So this is what you were. You were were the foreskins. That's how you were known, because you were outside. And then he says these things. He says you are separated from Christ. Remember, Jesus himself divides the human race in two. With him, against him, in, out, sheep, goats. I know that it's offensive in our day and age to think about people in binary categories like that as though, you know, isn't, aren't things all a little bit more gray and somewhere in the middle? No, Jesus says there's two types of people in this world. And Paul says, you were the wrong type at one stage. He says, you are alienated from the commonwealth, which means citizenship in God's kingdom. Think about the desperation that you see on people's faces and the news these days as they seek to gain, um, to seek to find a home in prosperous and wealthy and safe and secure nations and they'll go to any length in order to get there, whether it's, whether it's crammed into the back of a lorry or in a boat that's just as likely to capsize across the, the channel or whatever it is, to gain citizenship. And Paul's saying, look, the great privilege, knowing that you have the passport, God's passport, that was not yours, you were outsiders, friends. 
It says you are strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants, of course, are the marriage vows between God and his people. The security of the commitment of his love so that you will never be afraid. And to be outside the covenant is therefore to be outside of his love, to experience insecurity on the most profound level of your soul, what I would describe as cosmic insecurity. He says you are without hope. Because any hope that you try to grab without Christ in your life is by definition a failed hope. And he says you are without God in the world. I think many people, Jeremy alluded to this just a few minutes ago, understand what that means. To have a life that feels empty at its core. Because God's not in it. And so we run harder, we work harder, we we pursue our ambitions, we earn as much as we can, we fill our minds and our time with distractions. But even then, sometimes that sense of total isolation and loneliness and emptiness catches up with us. And he says, that was your existence. Don't forget this, friend. Don't forget what it was like before you knew him, before you could call him father. That was you on the outside. And then... He says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, this is the moment of conversion. It's described in all kinds of different ways and metaphors in scripture. Sometimes it's described in terms of being once you were lost and now you're found. So it's there in Psalm 107. Some wandered in desert wastes until they found a city to dwell in. It's like coming home. It's there in Christ's story of the prodigal son. He wandered, squandering his money, sleeping with prostitutes, partying every night until he had nothing left and he was destitute. And then what did he do? He came home. The experience of going from outside to inside is sometimes described as being lost and then found. Sometimes it's described as being a social outcast to becoming a full member. That's there in in many of the interactions Christ has in the gospel when he meets with people who were social outcasts because of their status as sinners or the mistakes they'd made in life or being lepers. I think the most beautiful and striking example of this, well, actually, I could list a few of them, but one of them is Zacchaeus, who, when Jesus meets him, is is just a a despicable figure. This, This man who had been robbing his own people and corrupt man, and Jesus spots him climbing up a tree as he's walking through the town, and, and, and he calls him down. He says, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. And Zacchaeus discovers the extraordinary change that can happen in your life when you know love for the first time, and not just any love, but the love of Christ. And he goes from being a social outcast to being an insider, and it changes his heart on the spot. He wants to give away all the wealth that he's in illegitimately accumulated in his life, such as the transforming power of the love of God. So lost, found, outcast to a full member, sometimes it's described as going from dirty to clean. That's there in the image of baptism itself, that all of us without Jesus are filthy. We're in filthy rags, our hearts are dirty, we must be cleaned by him in order to belong to him. And that doesn't mean you, 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 you'll live a perfect life, but it rather means that his blood covers all your sins. All these things are true, but the thing that Paul says here is this. He says, but now, verse 13, 
In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I want you to think carefully about what the point he's trying to make here. What does he mean when he's saying brought near? The first thought that comes to mind, and it is absolutely true, is that you've been brought near to God. I think the the most striking way of describing this is what took place when Christ's body was torn and lacerated and bled out upon the cross. And we're told in the Gospels that the moment that he expired and died... The curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was manifest from the rest of the temple, was separated by a curtain, a very thick curtain, some inches thick. And at the moment that Christ's life was expired, the curtain was torn from top to bottom as though the very hand of God ripped it in two to signify that you are welcome. That now that Christ's body has been broken, no barrier need exist between God and man. So when Paul's saying here, you who are far off have been brought near, he has, I have no doubt that he means primarily that you've been brought near to God. However, that's not all that he means. And this is where the idea of the church comes back into the picture. He also means that you've been brought near to each other. That's his whole point in this part of his letter. Think of it like this. One of the things, you know, I'm not a great royalist. I have respect and understand the point of these institutions, but I feel fairly ambivalent much of the time. But one of the things that I've often been struck by has been the uniting power of the late queen. How at certain moments in our national life, and I think perhaps mainly the jubilee that took place a few months ago, you suddenly find that there is a togetherness and a solidarity as a people because you're drawn together around a figure who's widely loved. And that is a small, tiny taste of what the church is gathered around Someone who is infinitely more worthy in the person of Jesus Christ. A king who has won our hearts. So that wherever you see Christ being worshipped, that boundary between God and man broken so that we are welcomed into his presence, you also see in the New Testament the gathered reality that we are among others worshipping him together, that we are bound together horizontally because of the love we have for Christ vertically. I see this, for example, in that beautiful passage in Hebrews 12, where he says that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. He's describing the privileges that you have as a Christian. You get to come into God's presence, he's saying. But he says, and to the assembly or the church of the firstborn, that's us, who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Can you see what I'm trying to say? The part of the reality of what it means to be called to Christ, to be brought near to him, is not just about you and him. 
as beautiful and precious it is, as it is to have a personal relationship with God. And you're not a Christian if you don't have that. But that's not all you have. You suddenly find yourself among a company of the redeemed. And that's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 2 when he says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because he immediately goes on the next verse and says that he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and so on. And we're going to have cause to unpack this and its richness and its implications for us in the weeks to come. But all I want you to see at this moment is how Paul is trying to shape and reshape your understanding of who you are, your very identity, by the retelling and remembering of your story. I think this is incredibly important. If we forget, if this is no longer central, then our human nature, our nature reasserts itself and we slip back into the tribalism that comes from owning worldly identities. And this is This is how human nature is wired. There's no point in history that you can ever point to when that hasn't been true of us. Why is it that we so are prone to misunderstand each other and to war with each other or to, to hate one another or to vilify each other or to judge each other? Well, it's because we are deeply, deeply tribal creatures who feel trust only for that which is like me and everything which is different is dangerous. And threatening. And as much as, you know, we hate that and embody it all at the same time, you see in the world in which we live, this instinct is in many ways being inflamed by the cultural tone of, of our conversations right now with increased polarization and more of a kind of pressing of people into narrow kind of identities and understanding of who you are on worldly terms. Now, I understand that some of that's well-intentioned as a means of profiling and raising up um, people who have otherwise been neglected or overlooked or abused. I understand that. But perhaps the unintended, or in some instances, intended consequence is that we're seeing increased misunderstanding, increased distrust, and increased division in the world at large, aren't we? And of course, that's what happens when you focus on our differences. And when they become the controlling way that we think about ourselves, when I find identity by retreating into a narrow definition of who I am that's different from everyone else, then by nature that divides me from everyone else. And what you must see and what Paul's laying the groundwork for here is how the gospel works in the opposite direction. It says, no, 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 you used to be a disparate no-people. You were strangers, you were aliens, you were, you were, you were scattered. You know, it's, it's put similarly in other places in the New Testament. I think about particularly 1 Peter 2, how this is articulated in a similar way. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies. But he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's saying, look, we were just... 
We all hated each other. We were different tribes. We were different languages. We were different races. We were all kinds of things that divided us. That was our old identities. He's saying, but don't forget, friends, what's now true of you. You've been brought near to him and to each other by the blood of Christ. And it is my conviction And this is a hill I will die on. That the gospel has a unique power to bring people together in the deepest possible way. The reason why I believe that is because the gospel works in two directions. First of all, it flattens out the past in the sense of your successes and your failures, your privileges or your disadvantages, because none of that matters in terms of giving you acceptance and status before God. It obliterates those things, in other words, that divide us. And at the same time, you can say with Paul here, I've been brought near by the blood of Christ. I've been brought near by the blood of Christ, which is to say, you and I are equally accepted by the Father, covered by the sacrificially atoning blood of our Savior Jesus, so that we are all sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. And I don't know any other force, message, ideology in the world that can do those two things at the same time and so bring our hearts together into the beautiful unity that is the church of God. And this is why Paul is saying Friends, never forget. If we're divided, it's because we've forgotten. If there's distrust among us, it's because we've forgotten. If there's hatred or animosity, it's because we've forgotten. Don't you remember? When this stuff lives in your heart, it establishes a new sense of who you are. So that whatever grievances you've experienced, whatever mistrust you feel of other people, whatever fear you have coming into a gathering like this, all of that can be washed away. Because this is your new story. I want us to bow our heads and pray. In a moment or two, we will take communion, which by, almost by definition, the reason it exists as a meal, a family meal, as opposed to something that you practice on your own at home, you can't do communion on your own at home, is because it symbolizes the oneness that we have as those who are now the redeemed brought near by the blood of Christ. And I want to urge and encourage you, if you're a Christian, you cannot take the bread or the wine whilst at the same time fostering hatred against a brother or sister or animosity towards God's people. It's not possible. The two things contradict But we can partake 
when we with Paul say, this is my new story. I belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We've been brought near, near to each other by the blood of Christ. The vision that we want to champion for us as a church is that we will give ourselves to each other in true communion beyond the memorial of the meal, beyond that into real love and community and fellowship, becoming this temple that combines people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and races and ways of thinking and believing and living because the supreme thing is our togetherness in Christ. Of course there's going to be differences and we'll disagree. That's okay. Jesus is still central.